may be seated. If you are uh, a young child, you may be dismissed at this time for your Sunday school class through grade five. And uh, I may look like your pastor today, but uh, I'm actually not. I had to travel through time to be here today uh, to tell you my story. And, uh, and today is very kind of gloomy and dreary outside, and I guess that's very apropos to, to my story, to, who, to my life. Um, I'm, I'm glad to share it with you. It's found in Joshua chapter 7, but, but very few people know my story. Um, I think... The, the reason why no one really knows my story is, is there's not, it doesn't have like the amazement or the majesty of Jesus' birth, and it doesn't really have the heroism of David versus Goliath, and it doesn't have the romance of the story of Ruth, and uh, it doesn't really have the goodness of, of some of the stories of Jesus, like especially Jesus and, and Zacchaeus. Um, no, my story is, uh, is mine, but but it's a tragedy. Uh, and it's a story of sin. And not too many people like to talk about sin. Um, and, and I encourage you, as I share my story, to ask God what, what you might have in this story, like maybe where sin lurks in your life or, or how, how you might be tempted or, or what happens if you sin. For me, it started one morning with a knock on my door, which was really a tent post, and it was, uh, I, I opened the flap, I recognized the man as a soldier in our army, and, and he said, get ready, when you see the Ark of the Covenant come by, fall in line, and, and so I got dressed, my family got dressed, my youngest waited at the tent fl- pl- flap, waiting, waiting for this to come by, and, and he did, and, and as this Ark came by, this golden box that not only contained the Ten Commandments, but literally the presence of God among our people, I fell in line. The priest came by holding the ark. Most of the army was behind them. And in front of the ark were seven priests playing trumpets. And so I waited for my tribe, there were 12 of them, so I had to wait a while. My tribe, the tribe of Judah, came by and I waited until I saw my clan my clan was like my, my great-grandfather's family. Zara was his name. And so when I started to see that clan and some of my relatives, I, I knew I was about to be ready. And, and then I saw my cousins and my grandfather's family. Zimri was his name. And, and so then I fell in line with my cousins, my second cousins, my brothers. We were the sons of Carmi. And so I marched in line. And I marched, and I waited, and, and away we went. And as we marched, word came around that God had spoken to Joshua and that he was giving us this city that we were marching to, Jericho. And so we marched, and we came to the city. And as we were, we were coming, they said, don't talk. Don't even shout. Don't say a word. We're just supposed to march. And so march we did. We came over this small, va- or small hill, and we were coming down into this valley. And as we came down into this valley, across the way I could see Jericho. I mean, even from across the way, even from coming down this hill, 
the city was ominous. The walls were huge, and as we marched back up the other side of the valley, the walls just seemed to grow and grow. And we'd heard that these walls were so big that they didn't just have rooms or chambers or ladders in, in these walls. They had, they had whole houses that lived inside the wall. And so we marched, and we were, we were safe enough distance away that the archers could, could not shoot us. There were people on top of the wall, and we just marched, and, and we weren't supposed to talk, and we marched around the south side, and then we turned northward, and we marched around the back side. And as we turned westward to march around the north side, I realized, he said, wait until the day that, that Joshua says to shout. So I should have listened better, because we marched home, and, and my kids said, what happened? And I said, we marched. And, and then the next day, the knock at the door, come, get ready, when you see the ark, come by. And so fell in line, and we marched, and it wasn't the day. We marched around, came back, ate dinner, went to bed. Day three, we marched, we walked, we didn't talk. I was really hoping day four or day five or day six, the trumpet-playing priests would have learned a new song or two or three, but not so much. Um, but day seven came, and day seven was different. I mean, number one, uh, the soldier came by even before the light of the sun came up. He had a torch in hand and he said, bring water. We're marching seven times today and then was off to the next house. And so I got ready and, and we got in line and we marched again and again and we went around again and again and again, but there was an anticipation. So it didn't seem like it was that long. And we marched and we marched and we marched and we marched. And, and then finally, after we were coming around the se- seventh time, Joshua had the army kind of spread out as much as we could around as much of the city as we could. And there he, he came by and he said, Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed. It will be a burnt offering to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute who saved our spies, um, will be saved. Everything else must be destroyed. Don't take anything set apart for destruction or those devoted things or you will be destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. So everything made of silver and gold and iron and bronze must be given as an offering to, the God, to our God and put in his treasury. So today is the day you shout. And then the trumpet players winded down, and then all of a sudden they blasted the loudest blast and the longest blast that we'd heard in that week. And as they finished that blast, shout we did. I mean, we shouted long, we yelled, yeah, and as we finished shouting, the earth started to shake, and, and uh, the rumble started going across from the few hundred year, yards we were away, and then this cracks started to go up the sides of these huge walls, and then boom, and then the, the walls just crumbled out, and Joshua said, go, Fight, the Lord has given this city. Let us give it back to him as a burnt offering. And so with swords in hand and torches in hand, we ran into that city. The people that hadn't fled didn't put up much of a fight. And all afternoon, we went from neighborhood to neighborhood. We went from house to house. We would root around and search for precious metals and turn them over and then torch the house. 
And tribe by tribe, we scattered throughout the city and clan by clan, neighborhood by neighborhood, house by house. We did this all afternoon and into the early evening. And my brothers and I were kind of together as we would do this. And one of my brothers, we would take the precious metals and we would bring them to him and then he would sling them over his shoulder and then carry them, carry them to what was left of the gates of the city where the priests were to haul everything away. And in and, and this one point... Um, we, my brothers and I, we kind of ended up in this upper-class neighborhood. It was in the higher part of Jericho. It was towards kind of the early evening. The sun hadn't quite set yet, and, and it was just, you could tell. The houses were a little bigger. I mean, they got the mountainside sun or the mountainside wind as without any interruptions and breezes into their homes. And the minute we went into these homes, they were just beautiful tapestries and paintings and and as we, as we went in, there were, there were idols and fancy furniture and, and the precious metals were even more abundant and we just took them out and, and brought them to you know, one of our brothers and, and that just kept happening and happening. But on this one occasion, in this one house, I ended up alone. I, I went through the house and I searched and searched, didn't find anything, finally made it up to the master bedroom and I... I looked under sheets and in drawers and started throwing things out on the floor and came to this big dresser, looked in the closet, didn't find anything, found this big dresser and started taking out the drawers. Surely there must be something in here and dumped it out, looked through it, nothing, 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 dumped one of the last drawers out, went through it. And as I looked back into the dresser, these empty drawers way, way in the back the third one down, there was a, a leather pouch, a purse-sized thing, and I reached my hand in, and I pulled this out, and it was pretty heavy for, for the size of pouch or purse it was, and as I pulled it and it came to the edge of the dresser, it, it fell open, and the cinch opened, and, and coins fell out. And as that sun wasn't quite over the mountain yet, shined right into the window, I mean, just kind of reflected brightly, I mean, silver coins everywhere. And so I poured the contents out. And as I poured, it must have been hundreds of silver coins fell. And then this block of gold. And I picked up the block of gold. It it weighed about a pound, but it was solid gold. And and then I picked up a handful of the silver and, and looked at it. And I realized all afternoon, all through the looting, everything we had done, not once had I actually touched any of this stuff. Not once had I touched any of these precious metals. And, and these were precious. I mean, I've been a nomad for not quite 40 years in the wilderness. I mean, my parents talked about the riches of Egypt, but I'd never seen it. I'd never even gotten close to it, let alone touch it. And as I'm holding these things and just just thinking about that, I look over across the room and, and over on a chair kind of draped over it is this, is this robe. And it's, it's beautiful. It's kind of Babylonian looking. And, and so I set the metal down and I, I went over to it and I lifted it up and I looked at it. And I mean, the fabric was, was nothing I'd seen before. And I laid it on the bed and, and I started thinking about the fact that we're going to be going into this new territory. And as we go into this new territory, surely there's going to be fabric that we can purchase like this. 
mean, my wife had never sewed anything this beautiful before. Great sewer, but really. Um, and, and I'd never had my hands on anything like this. And so at that moment, I just started folding it over and over and over and over. The long way, got it, getting it flatter and flatter. And as I did that, I made it so it was about this thick, it, kind of a long strip. And, and I walked back over and I grabbed that piece of gold again and, and felt it and lifted it and looked at it. And I opened my tunic and I put it in my inner pocket. And then I took my tunic off and I pulled that silver and put it back in this pouch, cinched it up. And it could still lay pretty fat. It, flat. It was about five pounds, though, of, of silver. And I pulled it over and brought it over and set it inside of this robe and then folded it the rest of the way and pulled it around my waist and tied it and pretty flat, put my tunic back on and couldn't even really tell. And then I grabbed my torch and lit the dresser on fire and ran out of that house. I ran out onto the street. I saw one of my brothers. Nothing in there. Really a lot to look through though. And away we were to the next house. And the rest of the afternoon, we just continued to go house by house, neighborhood by neighborhood, finding the precious metals, bringing them back to my brothers, myself included. We would just do this for the rest of the evening until finally like the, the whole city was ablaze. And as we were running back through the streets now, I mean, the streets were warm from the heat of these flames. And as we ran out to the ruins edge of the city where the priests were carrying these things away, and as we ran back into the valley, we started walking, and I turned back and I looked at the city of Jericho. And it was ablaze. I mean, huge, giant bonfire. I mean, truly a burnt offering to the Lord God. Just like he had told Joshua, just like he had commanded that this city would be this burnt offering and everything in it. Almost everything. That night at camp, we celebrated. There was dancing and feasting and singing and everyone was involved. My whole family was celebrating and just couldn't quite get into it. I left my family there. I walked back to our tent and I went to the back room and took off my tunic and grabbed the piece of gold and, and felt it, and set it down and I unrolled the robe. The coins fell, the pouch fell out and put the robe on and just kind of looked at it and felt it. And then I went to the back corner where we have our rug and pulled up the back of the rug and started digging a hole, dug it down and, and put the coins pouch in there and put some dirt over that and then put the gold bar in and then took the, two, or the robe back off and folded it kind of in a neat square that, that came up about flush with the ground and then put the rug back down. Couldn't even really tell it was there. And, and then my family came back and, and they slept soundly. I, I slept okay. It was actually kind of hard to get to sleep because, because Joshua's words and his his kind of warning just kept rolling through my head. You know, don't take any of the things set apart for destruction or those sacred things or, or you yourself will be completely destroyed and you will bring trouble on Israel. But 
But as those words kind of ricocheted around in my head, so, so did other words. Like, you know, it's not really that much. And I'm really not hurting anyone. And I can't be the only one. I can't be the only one that took something. And besides, nobody really knows. The next morning I woke up and felt a little bit guilty, had some residual guilt, but, but it kind of moved into the recesses of my mind as, as word had gotten around that just like Joshua had sent spies to Jericho to spy out the land, now he was sending spies to Ai. It was a town about 15 miles away up into the mountains. And so those spies left that morning and, and we knew 15 miles it was going to take them a few hours to get there and, and who knows how long to spy out the land. And so we went about our day and, and that evening the spies returned and they met with Joshua. And that night after the meal that we had, each clan by clan had a meal, Joshua had sent word around that, that it was a small city, not very fortified, and just a fraction of our army would need to go, only 3,000 men. So the next day, um, oh, I slept a little bit better that night. I was really hoping to have Jericho literally behind us. And so the next day we got up and we waited outside our tents as the 3,000 soldiers went by. Some of them were, were from my tribe and several from my clan and, and even a few that I knew pretty well. And we knew that it would take a few hours for them to hike to AI and and then how long, we didn't know. I mean, would they make them march around the city too, or would God do that a different way? So we went out busying ourselves throughout the day, and it was about noon just after lunch, and, and I was carrying firewood back to my tent from the evening meal as, we, as I saw a young man running down the road that the soldiers had left on. And the speed at which he was running really told me that, that either something was very good or something was very very wrong. And as he ran close, and as I saw the look of panic in his face, I knew it was more wrong than good. And I dropped my wood and I ran after him, a safe distance back, but he ran all the way up to Joshua, who was near the tent of meeting, which is kind of like their, our portable church or tabernacle, if you will. And Joshua stood there and he ran and he was completely out of breath, but he said something to the effect of that that the army was, was, was routed and, and it was almost like they knew and, and people, like at least 30 soldiers had died and, and many, some even fled and others were trying to drag our wounded and our dead back. And then he collapsed. And, and then Joshua, I saw, run. I mean, first he tore his robe, which is like a, a sign for us of deep anguish. He tore his robe. He, he, he ripped open the flap of the tent of meeting And as it was starting to fall back down into place, I saw him fall before the Lord and fall before the ark and cry out to God on the ground on his face. And he said something like, why, God, would you make us cross the Jordan River only to be destroyed? What if others hear of our defeat? What then will become of these people around us? Won't they come and kill us? And if they do wipe us out completely, what of your great name? Oh God, will you do? He continued, but I, I walked back to my tent. And, and sure enough, two to three hours later, these wounded and dead were coming back. And I watched relatives and clan members and tribe members walk up to these wives and tell them their husbands had died. 
as they collapsed into the other's arms. And I couldn't help but wonder in those moments, was it because of me? Was something that I did, did that bring the trouble on us? Did my disobedience hurt these people? Later that night, I, I heard that Joshua came out of the tent of meeting and, and he called us all together, the whole nation. He stood near the tent of meeting and he said, Israel, the nation has sinned. He's broken my covenant, the Lord says. God says, Israel has stolen some of the things that I have commanded that must be set apart, those devoted things, those things set apart for destruction. Not only have they stolen them, but they have lied about them. And they have hidden them among their own belongings. God said that he will not be with us unless we destroy the things that were set apart for destruction. So go, people, and prepare yourselves, purify yourselves for tomorrow. For tomorrow, God will bring us tribe by tribe in front of the nation. And not only will he bring us tribe by tribe, but he will point out the guilty tribe. And then that tribe will come clan by clan, and he will point out the guilty clan. And then the guilty clan will come family by families or families by families until he points out the one. And the one that's caught with those devoted things, those things set apart for destruction, he himself will be destroyed along with everything he has. For he has broken the covenant with Israel and he has done a horrible thing in Israel. Well, needless to say, I did not sleep at all that night. I mean, if these words were true, then then tomorrow would be my last day on earth. And I kept having those words go through my head, the one caught with the devoted things. And I started to wonder, like, could I cover up that lie with another lie? Could I go and hide them in someone else's tent? And the more I thought that through, the more I realized, wait, no, Joshua did say, the Lord will point out the one. And so I knew that I could not hide that from God. And then I started to wonder, like, he said caught, So if I confess this tonight, and if I went to Joshua right now and just confessed it, would would God be merciful? Would our Lord, like, have a different punishment if I confess now? And as I thought about it, it just seemed easier to keep the secret. Maybe that wouldn't hurt anyone else. So tomorrow came and the sun rose and the whole nation gathered and and Joshua had his eyes on the people but his ears turned towards heaven and then the tribes came and marched one by one. I mean, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people coming by and took a while and he pointed out the guilty tribe, Judah, my tribe. And the clans came by, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, and he pointed to my clan, the Zerahites. And then the Zerahites came by family by family, and he pointed out my family. And then my cousins and my brothers came by till one by one he pointed to me. Joshua looked at me and he said, Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, 
Tell me what you have done. Confess your sin to the Lord and give glory to God. Don't hide it from me. That moment I fell on my knees and I looked at Joshua and I said, it's true. It's true. I've sinned. I've done this thing to Israel. Among the plunder, I saw a beautiful Babylonian robe, 200 silver coins and a block of gold and I took it. And it's in my tent. I hid it in the back and you will find it under the rug. And Joshua sent messengers to go and find it and find it they did. And they brought it back. They threw down the robe. They threw down the coins. They threw down the gold right there in front of Joshua, in front of the elders, in front of the nation, and in front of God. And the elders picked up the devoted things. And Joshua said, we're taking them to the valley of trouble, the valley of Accor. It was a silent walk. It was quiet. The only sounds really came from, from my livestock, my sheep, my cattle, my goats, and from my kids. They carried everything we had, even my tent, and they brought us to this valley. And I stood before the nation. I stood before Joshua. I stood before God. And Joshua looked at me. I'll never forget the look. He said, Achan, why have you brought this trouble on us? Now the Lord will bring trouble on you. The Israelites picked up baseball-sized rocks and they started throwing. And as I rushed over to protect my family and as these things hit blow by blow by blow, hitting in my head and the earth starting to spin and my vision go blurry, I just, right before I blacked out, I couldn't help but wonder, my sin is affecting more than just me. First up, I have to, uh, I'm, I'm back now, it's not aching anymore. I have, to, uh, I have to give props to my preaching professor from two years ago, uh, Dale Dury, who uh, not only gave us that um, method of preaching to, to preach the first person narrative, but also actually the story and, and showed us the example of what he did with Aiken. And I thought, this is so perfect for where we're at or who we are, and it fits into our story that, that I called him, and I'm like, can I just, you know, unless you want to come and do it yourself, can I just steal your idea? And he's like, no, go ahead, steal away. Um, I'm going to be on spring break. But, uh, but as we look at that story, that's a hard story. At least it was hard for me. And I, I wrestled with it all week, like, okay, wait, we don't really talk about sin, and, and we don't talk about how it affects us corporately. So, like, um, and if you want to be on, uh, if you want to have your U version out on the web, we'll we'll look at some verses here. But like, here's some here's some statements that that I want you to finish with me. Like, the first one is, "What happens in Vegas?" Okay, um, it's okay as long as I'm only hurting myself. Um, and then even this one around the the Christian community: Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Um, and I, I have a personal relationship with the one true God, and so I'm, I'm all about like that we're supposed to have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe, and Jesus came and he tells us that. But personal doesn't necessarily mean individual. I have individualized playlists on my iTunes. When I open my computer, at least when I open my PC, it says, please wait, loading your personal settings. I mean, our lives are built 
around this idea that we are individuals and that we are um, alone. And, and so when we look at this story, it doesn't really make sense to us. At least it's, it's hard to interpret, I think, because, because of this idea that, that Israel was this covenant community, what, what Jesus comes in and gets called the church. And so as we look at the story and as you think about your own lives, um, you know, we don't believe in stoning people anymore, just in case you weren't sure, and you walk out of here and go, dude, I went to this church today, and, and they're like condoning stoning people. No, that's not true. No, no, not true. And we don't, even things with the word stone in it, we don't approve of. Um, but, but where has this rung true in your life? I mean, where have you seen the consequences of either your mistakes or someone else's mistakes affect somebody else? Um, you can, if you want to share out loud, or you can, uh, if you want to text me a story, uh, 952-373-1274. 952-373-1274. You can text it, and I will get it right here. Um, so as you think about where that's rung true in your life, um, I actually posted it on Facebook, and uh, I was pretty shocked at some of the responses I got. Uh, I went to school with a girl, um, and uh, we were on the swim team together. Nice girl. Uh, she got married right out of college. And, uh, you know, she kind of had the, the perfect wedding and all that stuff. And she was like the perfect bride. And, and she wrote to me, um, adultery. It's the worst pain I've ever experienced. Praying to save my marriage when my husband loved another. Also explaining to my children who were in the room when I found out. They saw me crumble and fall apart before their very eyes. We were trying to teach the children about the Ten Commandments, which the oldest was learning in church, and helped me struggle through the fact that Dad broke one. I think we could look at divorce and go, that's a, a sin that affects more than just the person. But where else does it happen? I'm just refreshing to see if anyone responded. Anyone want to share a time in their life where this happened either to them or, or they were the cause? I know it's a big deal and we don't always share, but...
So you actually took the bold step of confronting her too. You went to her, which again is a, a challenging thing. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to confront, but okay. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome that you have that freedom. It's, it's, um, what? Yeah, in a few minutes we'll talk about, you know, there's this idea of corporate um, one sin affecting more than just one person, but there's also the idea that we see in Scripture of one person's freedom affecting other people's freedom. I heard a, a statement from someone who said, um, when you, um, the person that you're dating, especially if you're, if you're younger than me, um, but the, the first person or second person or third person you date probably isn't going to be your spouse. Um, so you're dating someone else's wife or you're dating someone else's husband. And, and what would you want them to do with that person? So um, that's, that's another one. In, in those moments where, you know, like you confront or you admit or you confess, um, what should our response be? I mean, I, th- I think that's really where we need to go. What do we do with this? If, if we're a covenant community, if we're a church, and we say that, that it's more than just me and God, that it really does matter that we're in relationship or, or that we can affect other people, then how do we respond to that? How do we respond when someone confesses? Do we forgive? Do we celebrate? Do we, do we hold that person to the grindstone? I mean, you can look at mistake after mistake after mistake throughout the centuries of the church that did it wrong. Um, whether it was the, the witch trials or whether it was um, the crusades. I mean, we've, we've not gotten it right if we look at the historical people who have claimed to follow Jesus, but, but how can we do it? Um, Galatians 6.1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back on the right path. Jesus doesn't shy away from confrontation when, when the woman who is caught in adultery, which again, we just talked about that affecting other people, um, when she was brought before the mob and they were accusing her and they were ready to stone, and I'm sure they could have quoted Achan, Jesus says, wait, you who have committed no sin throw the first stone. And so one by one, the people walked away and, and Jesus says to the woman, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none. 
They've left. And he says, well, I don't condemn you either. Go now and leave your life of sin. And so there's this huge, like, I, I, I feel it. I don't know if you do, but there's this kind of teeter-totter, this tension, this, okay, at one point we're supposed to confront and, and we can't condone, but on the other end, there's this, um, you know, God does have a standard and here is so clearly in this story, it is proclaimed. One man sin, and, and he says, like, Joshua goes before the Lord, and, and I'm sure that God knew it was Achan. If God knows everything, and he is all-powerful and all-knowing, which I believe he is, then I'm sure he knew it was Achan. But he doesn't say to Joshua, Achan has sinned. He says, Israel has sinned. And for this one guy's sin, this nation wasn't going to get to go farther. And so I, I just, I feel this tension, and yet I believe as, as the New Testament covenant community, as the, as the church, that, that Galatians 6.1 provides not only a, a word of truth, but also a model with which to do it. Certainly John 8, Jesus doesn't condemn, and so we should gently and humbly, but he also then says, go and leave your life of sin. Don't continue to do what you're doing. Matthew 18 is another example of, of, of a scripture that provides um, guidance with which to do it. Matthew 18 is a story where, where Jesus says, if, if another brother or sister or a believer has sinned against you, go in private and confront that person. And if they confess, then, then you're good. Then you're restored and it's done. And if they don't, then, then bring a witness. And if, if they confess, then good, you're done. And if they don't, bring, bring it to the whole matter. If, bring it to the whole church or or the community with which, the, with which you live. And if they confess, good, it's done. And if they don't, then separate them. It's never about the confrontation or the conflict or the sin. That story is all about the redemption or the reconciliation of that relationship. And so I think these words in Galatians provide a model for our response to this. But that means that we have to confront. That means we have to be about confessing. James 5.16 says, confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. And, you know, that doesn't mean like, like during our, our greet time, instead of grabbing coffee or bagel or doing a fun mixer question, we're going to go, okay, everybody, gets, go, go to each other and confess your sins to each other. Um, that means that, that find a trusted person in your life because because God is worthy to be confessed to, and we should, but he's really easy to just leave there and go, okay, now that now they don't have to see God or really, really have to interact with God, he's not really going to look at me, I can just leave that. And yet when we confess it to somebody else that's trusted, not to the world, not on Facebook, to someone who's trusted, that thing is brought out into the light and it loses its power I mean, that's what the scripture tells us. And so I wonder, I wonder if, if Achan would have confessed in that moment if, if things would have been different. God doesn't want to bring about destruction. He wants the nations. He didn't want to destroy those, those people in Canaan. He, didn't want it. he wasn't about killing that nation and that city of Jericho. He's about the world knowing the great and one true God and who he truly is. So as we go... 
um, know that last words, when we confess to each other and when we pray for each other, that sin loses its power and that we're healed, not just individually, but we're healed corporately. We're healed as a community. And as we move into this time that we're calling grand opening, um, it, that just says, hey, we're here, not, not in ways that aren't us, but just as a, as a, a community, I know that, that God wants us to do that well, and, and I don't think Satan wants us to do that well. And so if there can be division or there can be sin and that can be affected and thwarted, then, then we can't do that effectively. Then, then this people that, that don't know Jesus can't really hear a message or they'll hear a different message or they'll hear a mixed message. I even sat with someone who said, um, who is really in a tough place in this person's marriage. Um, and I started telling him, like what I was going to be talking about. And he's like, don't talk to me about anything from the Old Testament because that God's mean. That's a destructive God. Um, And the God of the Old Testament is patient and compassionate, slow to anger and always ready to forgive. And that's the God that we see in Jesus. And so as you leave today, as we we close in, in one song, if you can stay for it, as we close in this song of Christ alone, um, know that as we confess, as we, as we seek to live in the light, that we are healed corporately. And that, that statement that Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the city on a hill. It's you all are the light of the world. And you all are the city on the hill. As we all live rightly with Jesus, the world sees what God wants, that his name is great and he is the one true God. So as we stand and we sing and we close with this song of Christ alone, know that it's in Christ that we find the healing. It's in Christ that we find that freedom and that we can find that freedom together.